going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Well, good afternoon. I'm Jody Hughes in for Joe today. He will return on Monday. We have a great show coming up. We'll be finding out how you can turn bread into beer. This is my kind of topic. We've talked often about orphan wells in Canada in the West. And we're going to check in with uh, Blake Schaefer from the C.D. Howe Institute because he believes we're actually getting to a crisis point with orphan wells and we need to do something about it. Also going to chat with Margot Baker. She has the free pantry in front of her home and put a call out recently because they were so short on items and uh, she will be updating us on what's been happening ever since she did that. To kick off the program, I would love to welcome to the program Wendy Schiller. Wendy is a professor and chair of political science at Brown University. How are you today, Wendy? I'm good, thanks. Let's take a look at, uh, you know, 2018, an interesting year in American politics. Obviously, it has ties back to Canada on so many different fronts. But I think it's important to, to, you know, take a look ahead. And what is it that's on your radar for 2019? Well, I mean, in terms of American politics and international politics, I think figuring out the trade disputes and the tariffs that President Trump has still, you know, in place which is starting to really hurt some portions of the American economy. And there was a big jobs report that was good news today, but it was the previous two months were bad. So the economy is precarious, I think, and some of these policies, and uh, coupled with the government shutdown we have right now, which if it goes on way too long, could also affect the economy. So I'm looking for some pretty significant dips in the economy and then how that affects how President Trump reacts and how the Republicans react. With regards to these uh, trade deals, is it is this expected the amount of time that we've spent on some of the negotiations? Yeah, I mean, I do think NAFTA needed to be updated. I mean, it was, you know, it's been more than 20 years, and I think that made sense. But when you're starting to put, you know, tariffs on things that make it really hard for businesses to stay in business that had previously been doing well and employing people, then it becomes totally counterproductive. So whatever argument Trump wants to make about making things more fair for America, you know, tell that to the people in Pennsylvania or Michigan or Ohio or the soybean farmers uh, in Illinois who are going out of business because of this. So I think there's a delicate balance for them, and the Republicans have to decide at what point they're really going to start pressuring the president to roll them back. And the same thing goes for the shutdown right now. It's only 25% of the government, but it's a lot of border security and a lot of law enforcement. And sooner or later, the pressure is going to grow quite a bit on the Republican members of the Congress. The Democrats already said we want to open the government. And I, I wonder how long they'll support the president because, you know, they could pass a bill, the Democrats in the House and the Republicans in the Senate, they can pass a bill and send it to the president. If he vetoes it, they can override him. So that's the big thing I'm wondering is, you know, will the Republican Party split from the president if he, can t- if he insists on continuing the shutdown for too long? And what do you think would make them do that? The pressure just from constituents or uh, just they, it's a principal thing that they believe it's the right thing to do? No, no, I think it's going to be pressure, particularly from um, businesses uh, and also um, basically states like uh, we had a Republican senator from Colorado today saying that he really wants to see uh, the shutdown ended because there's a lot of federal employees in Colorado. And you do have a number of Republicans up for reelection in 2020. Um, from red states, states that voted for Donald Trump, but also have a fairly large federal workforce, and some of them are on the border themselves. So when you think about that, and these, pr- these 
these people are going unpaid for more than one paycheck period, then you're going to get a lot of pressure on those senators to push back against the president. Well, and we hear stats all the time up here in Canada that, you know, there's a huge percentage of, of the population that can't survive missing a pay period, never mind, you know, two or three of them. Exactly. And it just seems really tone deaf. What's so interesting is today a list of members of Congress and the Senate, the House and the Senate, came out that are not going to take their salary for as long as the government is shut down. That's what they've said today. And it's a mixture of Republicans and Democrats and senators and health members. So if that list starts to grow, then you even see that they're feeling pressure for looking hypocritical when workers and their constituents aren't going to get paid, but they're still getting paid even though the government is shut down. That becomes a much stronger problem for them as time moves on. So if that list grows and grows, that you know, that's another signal the Congress may signal to the president you've got to open the government back up. Which states do you think are the most affected by this? Or is it just across the board? For right now, it's a lot of the uh, western states, a lot of federal lands. So you have park service people, you have, and then border states. Mm -hmm. So southern border states, certainly that's the big fight over the wall on the southern border, but certainly even the northern border. And anybody doing border control, Homeland Security, FBI, uh, criminal justice, uh, Department of Justice, all those uh, law enforcement and border control people are not going to get paid. So those are the states, and those are generally, on the southern side, mostly Republican-controlled governors and senators and health members. And then on the northern side, it's mixed, but you can certainly understand where the pressure will grow and grow. Now, recently there was a headline that Trump had said that, you know, maybe I'll just declare a state of emergency and and build this wall. I mean, some are saying it was more of a flippant comment, but do you still think that that's on the minds of many Americans? Well, I think that would be a scary proposition for a lot of Americans because a state of emergency is really reserved for natural disaster, for example, and it triggers the ability to use federal funds in a particular way that's more flexible and fluid than our typical system allows. So this would be a way of getting around the congressional approval for using the money to build the wall. The president could just take money from some other account and start building the wall. I think Congress wouldn't appreciate that, both the Republicans and the Democrats. But also declaring a state of emergency, you know, suggests using executive power. Then the Democrats might be able to call the president out on abusing executive power. And that just opens him up to another set of investigations that I don't think that he wants. It's unclear whether he really understands, you know, how the electoral cycle works for 2020, since he didn't really think he was going to win in 2016. But presidential cycles are really important things at this point in time. Voters really start to think, do we want four more years of you? Mm -hmm. And so Trump's actions this year, ironically, not the campaign year, but this year, I think will start to push people either back towards him or away from him. Now, has that ever been done before? Has the president ever declared a state of emergency for a non-natural disaster? Yeah, I mean, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt did it, Abraham Lincoln did it, and he suspended um, habeas corpus, which Mm. was pretty extraordinary. So, yeah, presidents have done it in times of war. Right. We're not, you know, most Americans would say we're not at war here. And so I think it would take a lot to justify that. And I think even Republican senators would be uncomfortable with it. I think it'll be very interesting to see. I think you're right. This is a year that uh, people are going to have to take a hard look and decide where they stand with regards to uh, what has been accomplished and what they what they have faith in with uh, what could be in the future for sure. Wendy, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure.
We have a local company in Calgary who's doing this initiative where they're collecting food from different uh, locations and repurposing it or making sure it gets to uh, places that need donations. And another company is doing the same thing. I want to introduce uh, Aaron Scally. He's the small block brewing company owner. And Aaron, first of all, thanks for joining us. You guys have been getting a lot of attention for a new beer that you have started. Well, we're located in uh, Duncan, just in the Cowton Valley over on Vancouver Island. And one of the big focuses locally is on sustainability and local food. So what we've done is we've partnered up with the Cowton Green Community, which is a nonprofit organization that, again, is focused on sustainability. And one of their efforts is gleaning food before it enters into the waste stream and trying to repurpose it for uh, various uh, restaurants, food banks, and other companies throughout the CVRD, Cowichan Valley Regional District. And so you guys are taking bread, and this is to me, this sounds like the greatest thing ever. You're taking bread and turning it into beer. Yeah, if you've read any of the articles, there's some talk of it's old bread or or <laughs> some other moniker attached to it. What they do is they go around to, uh, in particular, an artisan bakery in Couchin Bay, which is just around the corner from us, True Grain. And they take the, uh, the sort of end-of-day bread that would otherwise enter the waste stream, and uh, they... Uh, cube it and freeze it for us until they hit uh, a key amount for us so that we can basically add it in in replacement of some of the malt that we would otherwise use for making our beer. And so, I, I mean, I've never made beer before. I didn't realize that you could use it from that form. I didn't I didn't know that was even an option. Basically, the, the process of making beer, to make it really, really short, is that uh, you heat soak um, barley in... Uh, warm water, basically the same temperature as your hot water tank at home. And what it does is it uses the enzymes in the barley itself to convert all of that barley into maltose, the sugar that uh, the yeast interacts with in order to create alcohol. What kind of a flavor does this beer have? That's an interesting question. So we've made two of these beers so far. The first one was a rye bread-based beer. So predominantly we used rye with uh, various types of rye bread, really, with uh, some of it with caraway seeds in it and what have you. And uh, it imparted a rye flavor to the beer. So you can't really taste bread per se, but it carried through this rye uh, flavor into the, the beer. Now, that was a, a tail end of the season, and by that I mean the, the hop growing season. So we actually used local uh, fresh hops straight off of the vine here in the Cowton Valley as the bittering hop and then flew in some hops from the mainland uh, from Chilliwack in order to be able to use those as the aroma hops. So all of it was fresh hopped, and, uh, and it created this very fresh hopped rye-flavored beer. How has this been received by your customers? Are they, I mean, they must love the concept of it. Yeah, incredibly well. People have been driving. We only really distribute on the island and primarily through our tap room, though we do can our beer and distribute a little bit locally. We've had people coming from the mainland. We've had people coming down from, uh, or I should say, up island from Victoria just to, to get a taste of this. Wow, this is such a great idea. I I wish you great success with this. And uh, I love the sustainability concept and angle. And uh, I look forward to hearing more about it. Thank you so much for your time today. 
And people can check us out on uh, Instagram at Small Block Brewing Co. if they're interested in the upcoming, because there will be another bread beer shortly here. Tail end of February, beginning of March, we'll be doing a another bread beer launch at uh, Victoria Beer Week. Awesome. Thank you so much, Aaron. Thank you very much for your time. We've talked about Orphan Wells before on our program. I'd like to welcome to the program Blake Schaefer. He's an Energy Policy Fellow at the C.D. Howe Institute. And Blake, recently you guys have uh, brought forward the issue for us to spend a little more time and attention on the matter of Orphan Wells. And as we get into the discussion about it, my initial thought is that we certainly have to look at our economy as being one of the reasons that we do have so many inactive wells in Alberta and Western Canada. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple things going on. So you're absolutely right. It's it's a cyclical issue, goes along with the the economy broadly, but more specifically commodity prices, oil and gas prices here in Western Canada. Uh, And so with the downturn in those prices, you saw a lot of um, companies not on great financial footing go bankrupt and leaving behind liabilities for, for others to cover. But the other thing that came along at the same time that's made this a bit more of a pressing issue is, is this, um, it's a court case now in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, the art, um, arguments have been made and we're just waiting to hear back from the Supreme Court. And it, it's sort of, it's called the Redwater case. And it, basically what it comes down to is when a company goes bankrupt, uh, who gets first, uh, who gets first right to the valuable assets that they leave behind. Is it the, the creditors, so those who loan money, or is it um, the regulator to pay off uh, environmental liabilities, to pay off the cleanup of other wells they left behind? And the issue with this case is that um, uh, it was found that it should go to creditors first. And this is a really big deal because the way the policies are set up, they're not set up well to manage that. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really putting a, a big risk that when companies go bankrupt, the cost of cleaning up wells is no is going to be more likely to be borne by either other surviving companies through the Orphan Well uh, Association or ultimately through the public. And so the Redwater case is really, uh, I guess it's pushed things to the brink of having to deal with it. We can't just sort of turn a blind eye to this. Uh, it's a really big issue. Do creditors want those assets? I mean, are they even assets at that point? Well, yeah, fair question. No, so they want the ones that still have value. Right. So the productive ones. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> so effectively, what it comes down to is the, um, uh, I guess, the executor of the bankrupt estate gets to go and pick through what are the valuable assets that we can go and provide the creditors to pay off um, those senior secured creditors first. So they're, they're, they're effectively picking out the ones that are of value to pay off the debts and leaving behind the ones that aren't of value. It amazes me that we ever got into this position with no end date. It just how did that ever happen? That's a very good question. I must admit, I'm not well versed on the history of of uh, this type of regulation here in Alberta. There's probably others that can speak to it more strongly than I. Um, but but it is when you think it through, the end game on such a setup with no time limit, really not a strong incentive to clean up. It really begs the question, why would a company clean up? Mm-hmm. You know, other than being a good um, citizen of the province and, and doing their duty, and, and you know, many do, um, there's some incentive to clean up because they can stop paying their surface rights holder if they're not going to use that land. Uh, certainly if they want to continue in that parcel, they need to be a good corporate citizen um, so that surface rights owners will continue to grant them surface rights. But there's really not a strong incentive. So it, it sort of... Uh, leads to a situation where 
the end state for an oil and gas industry is um, cleanup costs being downloaded to the public in the long run. So it's not too late to try to get ahead of that, but it requires some change in regulations. And what recommendations did you guys make? So we made a couple. I mean, one of the things you want to think about is, is imposing some sort of time limit. And BC actually just recently, in the past month, I believe, has talked about putting in regulations to impose a time limit. Um, we looked at maybe doing something more flexible than a, a rigid time limit because for some it might make sense um, to wait. There's certain wells that have a better chance of coming back versus others. So we looked at kind of a two-part policy. The first part would be modeled after what Texas does, which is a bonding requirement. So effectively, when you go to drill a well, you have to post a, an assurance bond. Mm. You put up some money. Not the full cost of the cleanup, uh, but some portion of it. Um, to at least offer some partial protection. And then the second part that we looked at was uh, effectively ratcheting up that protection. So imposing some sort of cost once a well goes into the inactive stage. So we suggested an an insurance uh, would be required to cover the cost to clean up. And so you can imagine a well owner, once they're no longer producing, they're having to pay these annual premiums to keep maintain the insurance. That will be a deterrent to stay in the inactive mode if they're truly thinking they're not coming back. So now they have this cost that they've got to weigh um, every year. And so it'll give them a stronger incentive to to clean up. And then you'll, you'll also have some protection through the insurance companies um, for the cost of cleanups there. So we're just trying to um, both raise the amount of collateral that's uh, brought and also provide some uh, disincentives to remaining in inactive suspended stage um, um, until you potentially go bankrupt and leave the cost behind. Is this something that there would be better times to do it to, with regards to the economy than others, or is it something that you just can't think of that you need to just move forward and start implementing some policy? No, it's a, that's a fair fair comment, and, that, and that's why we don't talk about a full bonding requirement because you can imagine the situation if you entered at this stage where companies are frail, um, relatively speaking, uh, with a full bonding requirement, you're going to be tipping the scales of more companies into bankruptcy. So you can be effectively forcing the hand. Um, so you do want to find some balance where you're getting some of that collateral that's required, but you're not uh, you know, tipping more than uh, is needed at the moment into a bankruptcy. Uh, that being said, if you're talking about um, well owners that are effectively walking dead, that are ones that do not have collateral, are unlikely to ever uh, be financially secure, all you're doing is advancing uh, that situation. You're bringing it forward, but it's it's there regardless. So um, we may as well confront it. But absolutely, you, you don't want to come in, I think, right now with a, an extremely onerous requirement because you're not getting what you want, which is protection. You're simply pushing people in towards bankruptcy. I think you want to find some middle ground where you, 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 you know, you get some uh, protections, but you're also hoping for these companies to get more financially strong and, and not ultimately leave behind their costs. Makes sense. Blake, thanks so much for your time today. really appreciate it. Thanks for the chat. I want to check in with Margot Baker. Margot has something called a little free pantry in front of her place and uh, recently reached out on social media for some help. So first, welcome to the program, Margot. Tell us, for those who don't know, what is a little free pantry? 
Uh, well, essentially, it's a big box that's on your property. Um, and ours is actually a tandem, so it's a little free pantry and a little free library. And the two of them together um, are kind of kind of like an L shape. The pantry's bigger. And essentially, it's just a bunch of dry goods that people who need them can help themselves to whenever and they need them. This is an amazing idea. What made you decide to do this? Well, it's, it's not my idea. I, I totally can't take credit for that. Um, okay. <laughs> I, I know that it started off in the UK and that there's a lot of them in the States, which is wonderful. Uh, there's not a lot of them in Canada from what I know, but uh, we've registered on littlefreepantry.org and littlefreelibrary.org. And I, I guess it's just, you know, I saw one, there was, there's one down um, outside of a tattoo parlor down in the Northwest. I couldn't, I can't remember the name of it right now. Um, I think, I think it's outside of Bushido, but I'm probably wrong. And I saw that and I thought, oh, you know what? I really want to do this. And so we just we just bit it off and we talked to some neighbors and got everybody together and kind of built one and put it up. And yeah, it's just been going along since. And so you did this Facebook post because you were running low on items, as I understand. Well, it's a little bit more than that because the big problem was is that we've tried to get some uh, corporate sponsorship and none of the grocery stores would talk to us mm. and our MLA wouldn't talk to us and our community center wouldn't talk to us. And it's just, it, there's so much need for it and nobody would even consider discussing any kind of assistance with us. Like when I started it, we, we had a budget for it and we were all planned out to fill it a couple, three times a month if we needed to. And now it's every three, four days and that's, and even more so since the Facebook page post has gone up. So it, it just got to the point where the demand was so strong that I couldn't keep up with it. So I, I made a Facebook post on January 1st saying, you know, this is, I'm a little bit frustrated because it's, there's a lot of need and, and I want to help, but I don't know how because nobody will even consider trying to support it at all. And the people that are taking from it, like they are not the ones who should be refilling it. Mm-hmm. So, and then it just kind of, it kind of exploded a little bit. <laughs> the, the, that post has been seen over 55,000 times. Wow. Shared over 300 times. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> Did anyone get back to you over why they were not getting behind it? Is it because they feel it might take away from some of the organizations that are already in place? Or did you even have any reason given to you? Uh, nope, I haven't had any reasons given to hmm. me. The only thing that I know about is... Um, grocery stores and things like that. We're not technically a non-for-profit. Mm. Uh, people just put food in and people take food out. It's, it's a grassroots movement. It's not a formal movement at all. So I, I would assume that that's probably part of the reason is because it it makes it tricky on their end. So um, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm putting a couple of feelers out and seeing who I could talk to and we'll see what happens from there. So if and, people would like to help you with your initiative, what can they do? How can they get a hold of you? Uh, well, um, they... If, if you Google it, it pops right up. And there's, <laughs> You're very popular. I, I'm Googleable. That, that is a really strange <laughs> feeling. Um, so they have, um, they can send gift cards for grocery stores uh, or dry perish, non-perishables. Um, canned goods, we will will re-gift through to the food bank or to the smile gang, but we can't leave them outside because... They, um, between the freeze and the thaw in Calgary, they actually become uh, hazardous. Oh, yes. So we don't, we don't want to do that. But uh, gift cards to grocery stores or, um, or even just dry goods, lots of people are dropping stuff off. And, yeah, it's, it's great. I've, I've set up a little uh, place to store things downstairs. We've got shelving and everything. And, yeah. Well, you are an angel. Margo, thank you so well, much for you your so time much. today. We appreciate it. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much for supporting us and getting the word out. It means a lot to people. 
Thank you so much for downloading today's podcast. Do me a huge favor and leave a rating and a comment. And you can always hit me up on Twitter as well. Just follow me at Calgary today.